Living Corporate is brought to you by Canaries. Let me tell you about Canaries. Canaries is a tech company formed in 2018 by black founders who experienced inequities in the corporate world like most of us in the workplace. They saw typical diversity initiatives, but knew that to create systemic change, diversity, equity, and inclusion needed to be done differently. They're still ahead of the curve, focusing on the E and the I using a data-driven approach. Think Canary in the Coal Mine. The name is a nod to the canaries coal miners used to bring into mines to determine if the work environment was safe or undesirable. That's what they do for companies. They help you find the folks you need to listen to, the canaries, who will help you diagnose, measure, and attack your DEI challenges. Canaries has your back. Check them out at www.canaries.com backslash employer. That's www.kanarys.com backslash employer. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate, and I am so, so tired, y'all. I'm tired. I am tired. Y'all see us. We've been dropping some, like, rant, like additional episodes over the past couple weeks because of just all this trauma. All this trauma. And there's um, yet, yet another and another and literally another case of... Um, state sanctioned murder and apparently a cover up by the police hiding body cam footage what's going on what is going on y'all like listen (laughs) the future of work will not be exclusive to the happenings of this world like technology makes that impossible technology makes that impossible uh, for those who don't know, maybe y'all have been seeing it in, you know, on the in the Twitter sphere, in the social media sphere. Basecamp just came out with an announcement about how they're just not going to talk about, um, you know, societal or political issues at work anymore. They're going to disband all the committees. They're going to remove incentives, <laughs> um, like very similar to Coinbase's announcement last year, right? And I'm gonna tell y'all that is not realistic for the world in which we live it's not only not realistic for your black and your brown employees it's not realistic for your white employees either to create an environment where you're only having for-profit discussions we're human beings right so we exist in these spaces as ourselves and for us to be successful in some of these roles especially these like very highly creative or collaborative or you know just roles that require a lot of critical thinking and intuition You have to be able to bring your full self to that space. And if you can't, you're likely not going to create the type of value that you want and certainly not the kind of value that companies are looking for. Like like we've done all the research on this already. Um, And so I I just share this just to say that, you know, companies, you're going to have to continue to learn and lean in on the concept of creating space for your people to be people at their jobs, especially when you think about like the rate of the cost of living is not matching the cost of living out outpacing rather uh, salaries and what people, where people can afford to live. Like 
basically people are having to work more and more and more right there's been studies on this too right the people are working way more hours today than they were 40 years ago 50 years ago and they're going to continue to because of inflation unless like we change like we're in a late capitalist society so the, my point is, is that we're going to have to create new environments so that we can act so this can all be sustainable and you telling us that you're not going to talk we're not going to talk about societal issues we're not going to talk about work things that directly impact the day-to-day lives of your employees is the opposite direction you need to go to that end I'm really excited about the guest that we have today, Sheree Atchison. Um, Sheree is uh, a global consultant, public speaker, educator, mentor, a lot of things, author. And I'm excited about having her on the show. We're going to be talking to her later on um, and, um, and just talking a lot about just like global trends in DEI as a space, the future of this work. And where we see things going. Uh, Cherie was uh, a lot of fun. And I'm just really excited for y'all to check her out. So make sure y'all stay tuned. Before we get there, though, we're going to tap in with Tristan. See you in a minute. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan. And I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. Today, let's discuss a couple of bad habits that may be holding you back from getting that new job. Have you ever felt like you were doing everything right in your job search, but no matter what you do, nothing is working? We always hear about what we should do to land a new job, but sometimes we also need to know what we should stop doing that could help us move forward in our job search. This past weekend, I read an article in Forbes by Adenola Adeshla titled, Want a New Job? These Bad Habits Might Be Holding You Back. She lays out some pretty common bad habits that I've seen in many of my own clients, so I wanted to take a moment to share them with you. First, you keep calling yourself a jack of all trades. Let's be real here. Most companies aren't looking for people who can do a semi-good job at everything. They want people who have a very specific skill set so they can do an excellent job accomplishing a particular set of responsibilities. You have to figure out how to show them that the skills you have will help them achieve their objectives. Second, you're constantly on the job search roller coaster. Do you only job search after you've had a bad day or week at work, but once things die down, you put your job search on the back burner? If so, that means you likely have no strategy for your job search, which can lead to burnout because you aren't being as productive and proactive as you could be. You have to be both serious about landing a new job and committed to the process required to get one. Third, you're constantly tweaking your resume. Don't get me wrong, having a great resume is necessary, but remember that it's only one piece of the puzzle. Other parts of a strategic job search include gaining clarity on what you want out of your next role, understanding how you speak about and frame your experience, building a solid network, and more. You should try to allocate your time fairly evenly to ensure a successful job search. Fourth and last is you're seeking advice from too many people. I know that we want to seek out and have as much information as possible under normal circumstances, but casting a wide net when it comes to informational interviews, email seeking assistance, and your Google searches, or even on social media will leave you in a confused state as you try to piece together all the information. 
Adenola puts it best in her piece by saying, instead of seeking advice from everyone and piecing things together, get clear on the right type of people you'd like to have in your support network and determine the right type of resources you need to help you elevate and accelerate your career goals, then ignore the rest. If any of these sounds like you, now that you know better, you can do better. If you want to land that job and level up in your career, you need to reassess your job search habits and replace the bad ones with ones that will help you get to where you want to go. Check out the article referenced at the link in the show notes. Thanks for tapping in with me today. Don't forget, I'm now taking submissions from you all on career questions, issues, concerns, or advice you think may help others. Make sure to submit yours at bit.ly forward slash tap in Tristan. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Living Corporate is brought to you by the Liberated Love Notes Podcast, part of the Living Corporate Network. The Liberated Love Notes Podcast is a starting point for integrating self and community affirmations into your daily practices. The Liberated Love Notes Podcast center the experience of black folks existing in white systems and speaks to overcoming imposter syndrome, disrupting injected and internalized forms of oppression, embodying an abundance mindset, and building a healthy, racial identity check out liberated love notes podcast wherever you listen to podcasts hosted by Brittany Janae Harris Cherie what's going on how you doing I'm good I'm good how are you you know what um I'm, I'm good I'm good <laughs> uh, it, <laughs> you know we're in the middle of this pan uh pandemic and um you know it, with the with the vaccines uh coming um there's a bit more you know, I'm gonna say I'm I'm gonna say I'm at a bit more peace. Mm, yeah. But um, but you know, we're still we're still in the middle of the pandemic, so. Yeah, yeah. Have have to take the small the small wins, I think, at the moment. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, now look, you know, we're getting right into the interview. Um, I, I did a bit of an intro, uh, just kind of like on your background as as a DEI leader, um, and your exposure, like in the UK and, and the work that you've done, the, the speaking education that you've done. And all those different pieces. I'm, I'm curious, like, when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion today, um, talk to me about, you know, your perspective on the industry, um, maybe from like a UK lens and then like a broader global lens. I'm just curious, to, like, I'm curious to talk to someone with a more global profile about your perspective. Yeah, I guess I am, all of the work that I have done has always been global leadership roles and, and certainly the, the really important point when you look at DE&I globally is that it's incredibly nuanced and incredibly different. The inclusion part, you know, understanding senses of senses of belonging, feeling if you have fair opportunities and so on is overall that's relatively similar in different places. But actually the diversity piece is obviously very different depending on the region you're looking at, whether it's, you know, North America South America, the UK, Europe, which is a minefield when it comes to diversity and certainly diversity data and APAC and so on. And and what, what I I see and certainly what I do is really helping organizations understand that nuance, but at a pace that actually gets things done, as opposed to um, spending so long talking and not a lot of time doing. You know, and to that end, I, I, we talk about when we talk about inclusion and belonging and equity, right? Like, you know, conversations, conversations I've been having here and on Living Corporate just at large, um, 
talking of examining the concept of power more right and and the fact that power needs to be redistributed for but for inclusion to happening to for inclusion to happen and then by extension belonging you know in the conversations that you're having and just in in the work that you're doing how much is power explored like as a concept yeah, I, I mean, power is explored in all of the, the conversations as a concept and directly linking that to privilege awareness. And that's privilege awareness is, is ultimately what all of my work is really rooted in around the self-awareness of our own privilege and how that is different for different people. But the reasons as to why it's different, because I think with the awareness of privilege, we can start to really understand how you redistribute power and what that actually means in a, a, a logistical sense and an actual doing sense as opposed to just theory. Um, and I think people are very, I guess, unsure whenever you say power, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of people are unsure of actually what does that mean? Um, so it's really about opening up that conversation, bringing it back to a personal level around that, you know, personal privilege and how the systems of privilege will advantage or disadvantage you and then moving forward with how you redistribute that in a way that is more impactful than for those that you may not directly identify with as well because otherwise we have create we create these different I describe it as exclusionary inclusion where it's inclusion that only benefits the people that you may directly identify with or care about but actually why should you need to care or why should you need to know someone or have an experience with someone or have an experience with a group of people to care about the rights, to care about the power displacement of that group? You should care anyway. Um, and it's really about opening up that conversation for me. You know, to that end, right, like this this idea of like, well, you know, you should go out to dinner with this person or you should invite this person over. It's like, well, you can, you can do those things, but that's exhausting. Mm. That's exhausting. That's exhausting yeah. for the person in question. Scale. Right. And it doesn't scale. Right. Like yeah. everyone like there's there's a there's um, a near infinite number of reasons why I would not go out to dinner with this person. If I'm just like, look, I'm I have my own life. I have things going on. Like I'm not I don't have time. I don't have the, a pandemic. <laughs> oh, there's a pandemic. I was, like I can't. No, I will not do that. Um, so there has to be another yeah. pull or lever. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You talk about, you know, we, so we talk about privilege. I think so often we we, we do examine privilege in these. Um, fairly binary ways, right? In terms of, mm-hmm. you know, if you're if you're white, you're you're privileged. If you are uh, black or brown, you are not. Um, but you know, you you've had conversations and you've you've led talks about, you know, the nuance mm-hmm. and intersectionality of privilege, right? And how like, you know, you can be underrepresented but still have privilege. You can be, yeah, right. So like, can we talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, of course. Um, and a big part of my book, demanding more, is really focused in on that nuance. Of privilege that it isn't like you said you know one or zero um and i i talk a lot i always share my own personal i guess experience because i think it is a very nuanced experience that many folks do not have so people listening to me right now you know you're not seeing my face you'll see it i'm sure zach will create a lovely promo picture and stuff like that but yes. um from <laughs> <laughs> from listening to me and hearing my name you you know I'm an Irish woman um but actually I'm also a person of color because I was adopted from three weeks old from Sri Lanka and my parents that adopted me are white Irish people um and so I've been raised in Ireland my entire life um I now live in London um but again all of my family are Irish um and that gives you a very different viewpoint um lots of people talk 
about being the only in the workplace, you know, in the boardroom, in your team, in your office, in your company. But actually, a lot of people don't have the experience of being the only in your entire family, in your entire friend circle, in your entire school. And certainly, you know, all of my family is white, bar my brother, who's also adopted. Um, When I went to school, everybody was white. Um, Secondary school, pretty much the same. I'm from rural Ireland, where, um, you know, if, if there is a traffic jam, it's because a farmer is moving his cows from one field to another. So it, it's not even a city. Um, it's a very small village. And that perspective of being the only as you take it through your life gives you a different nuance of, you know, I certainly faced quite a lot of racism growing up um, and had to, had to deal with that quite a lot, as did my brother. Um, but then as I came into the industry, um, there's a, there's a transition of privilege for me. So I grew up on free school meals, which is in the UK, a state provided benefits if your parents are on disability benefits or are earning below a threshold. And my parents ended up disabled. And so we're on, on state provided benefits. So I do not come from a wealthy background. I come from a very working class background. But certainly as I have came into the industry, I used to be a software engineer and now I'm a, a global DE&I exec. Um, I have a financial privilege now that my family never has had. We are not used to that kind of, I guess, income or money being around. And I'm also married to a white Irish man. And it when you start to think about how privilege manifests itself, I always say the biggest privilege that I think people can have is the privilege of being listened to. And I am listened to. I mean, I'm being listened to right now. Um, but what I mean by that is when you're listened to, when people are actively interested and waiting to hear what you're saying versus re- getting ready to or speaking over the top of you, you have the ability to share your views, to share your insights and to be respected to do that. And that means usually that you're at a level of privilege of seniority and so on, um, especially as a woman of color. That's quite a big deal for me. And that's where the nuance of privilege comes into, because whilst I am incredibly underrepresented in my field as a a senior woman of colour in industry, I am also incredibly privileged because I don't have any financial worries. I I am listened to. I sit in senior leadership rooms. I'm able to comfortably talk about my partner because we're both heterosexual. So that's what I mean by the nuance. And that's why when the conversation, like you mentioned, really goes back to, oh, well, all white people versus all black and brown people versus what men versus women versus etc cetera, etc cetera. we really lose the nuance and the ability to have an authentic conversation um, and that's what we need to stop doing and um, we really need to stop with facetious conversations but actually ones that are relevant to the real world that we all live in you know to to that end i'd love to to get your perspective because yes you're right this is not video we're going to have your picture up so folks will see you. Um, can we talk a bit ab- about, you know, in the UK, help me understand, you know, I'm, again, I'm, I'm firmly in the United States. Um, mm. But, but I, I, my understanding is that the way that um, they, that they organize or kind of categorize ethnicities, it's like, it's white and then it's bam. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Bam, bam, yeah. <laughs> talk yeah. to me about that. Well, I think what's really interesting now that you brought it up is so just yesterday afternoon, um, so 
context first. Um, after the murder of George Floyd last year, we saw the globalization of the Black Lives Matter movements, despite them existing since 2013. But in the UK, one of the commitments our prime minister made was to create um, a commission to really um, delve into and analyze racial inequalities in the UK, um, to find out or really see if there was um, institutional racism in the UK. And you may be surprised to find out that that report shared yesterday has stated that there is no institutional racism in the UK. So racism is fixed here in the UK. That's if shocking. you weren't aware of that. I mean, That's yeah, shocking. it is shocking. I wrote about this for Forbes this morning and a lot of, I guess, my counterparts have been writing about this all day um, because, oh, suddenly there's no racism in the UK, despite the Windrush generation, for example, despite the very clear um, issues and differences when we look at stop and search by the Metropolitan Police, when we look at the um, survival rate of black women, for example, um, when they are giving birth. Um, and so ultimately what the report has said is that there's no institutional racism. And when you mention BM or BAME, they want to change that. And I, I've been a big fan of changing that because what it previously has done has grouped together um, people of colour and ethnic minorities in a way that doesn't make sense. But what I what we can see in the report that they are doing is that by looking at it more granularly, is starting to pit groups of people against each other using model minority tactics. Um, so, for example, one of the the things that that is um, very clearly said in it is um, around how the difference in African communities here in the in the UK. So, for example, that there are um, new African communities that are doing really really well, um, but actually their Caribbean peers, which sit in the same classrooms, aren't doing so well. And their direct quote is. It is difficult to blame racism in education for the latter's underachievement, considering they sit in the same classrooms. Wow. So, yeah. I, you got to read the report, Zach. It's linked in my forum, but you got to read that. It's 260 something pages, so it does take a while. But We're going to hyperlink I mean, it too for, our, for, the, for the listeners, too. Cause... You got to, yeah. So there's a lot going on here in the UK. Well, so the U, it's interesting because the UK is built on, I mean, it's, it's an imperialist yes. nation. Like, it was built on, I mean, Y'all literally took over like, everywhere. They just took over everywhere. I mean, I'm Irish, so I'm not part of the British yeah. stuff. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like what? I'm so conf- I'm so confused in terms of just like you know. You know what though? That that's a good that's a good segue into um, you know we talk about concepts around white supremacy uh, and racism, patriarchy, misogyny, uh, imperialism, capitalism, like all these systems, right? it seems as if denialism is a core function for any of it to thrive or sustain. I'm confused as to like how one could even come to that, such a conclusion. Obviously um, you are as well. Um, hence the piece that you wrote for Forbes, but I mean, have you ever had situations where you've talked to leaders or you've, you've worked in organizations where people are truly just in denial about the reality around them? Yeah. And, and, and a lot of the time when I have those conversations it's because people have been able to live in a bubble where this hasn't affected them or they have been able to separate themselves enough from it so as it's not their problem why would I care I mean I'm I'm fine everybody that I care about is fine and I think that that when I when I see that lack of awareness or that lack of I guess 
acceptance of what's happening, just like we have seen in this report um, yesterday from Downing Street. Um, I mean, all of my work is rooted in data. I, I have very clear statistics that I talk about around how people of different underrepresented backgrounds are treated differently, whether that's when it comes to pay, when it comes to access to opportunities, when it comes to the future of work, when it comes to healthcare and so on. And for the most part, I have been able to bring people around um, by really talking about that in a way that you can't refute. However, there will always be people that will not want to accept this. And again, you know, in the, in the commission that was set up to do this report, a number of the commissioners, including the head, um, are actually deniers of institutional racism, despite him being a black man, for example, and all the other chairs being um, people of colour as well. So there's a, there's a, a real problem when it comes to that disengagement of actually what it means for real people. Um, in, in the ONS data, the Office of National Statistics data in the UK that was released not too long ago, we also seen that um, black women and Pakistani women are hit the hardest when it comes to unemployment rates. And every group, men and women, when it comes to um, looking at people of colour versus white people do worse in all areas of unemployment. I mean, that that's not lying to us. It's telling us a very clear picture. We see in the report as well yesterday that there's a very clear bias when it comes to hiring, but yet still we're being told there's no institutional racism here. Um, and what I really wish was that people would be willing to, to accept that there are some incredibly disgusting and horrible things that we, that certainly the UK, for example, and, and countries around the world must accept that they have done so as we can learn from it, so that we can accept it and then move forward with purpose in a, in a meaningful way, as opposed to pretending that, you know, the land of the free British excellence and so on is what we need, because, you know, that's not what we need. You know, Cherie, it's interesting as we as we have these conversations more and more, the thought leaders that I'm engaging, you know, they're they're increasingly being fo- they're increasingly focusing on systems um, instead of just individuals, right? Not just individual action or individual thoughts and behaviors, but the actual systems to which uh, that that empower those behaviors and thoughts. I'm curious, you know, as we talk about the future um, of DEI and uh, where leadership needs to go, you know, wh- what do you envision? And, and you know, if you were to t- when I say future, I'm talking about like the next like five years. You know, like what where do you where do you see the space going? And where do you see leaders having to make uh, the biggest transitions in terms of mindset, style um, and behavior? Yeah, I mean, for me, the biggest transition is the accountability piece. And I write about this a lot, too, because one of the biggest pitfalls in DE&I work is assuming that things will the business leaders will be accountable without metrics and then the second pitfall is that they the assumption that diversity representation accountability is enough to change workplaces to change policies and processes and it isn't um, and what I what I'm hoping to see and certainly in the work that I do is really around the use of Um, granular people analytics in organizations to really give that understanding of you know who 
does feel like they're being treated unfairly where how is that changing how is it breaking that down per business unit per leader for example per region to really get a nuanced understanding and a granular view of what's really really happening and i think for the most part you know that's where hopefully well things are evolving in that way like my, my last rule of pecan was really focusing in on that um and it's a game changer when you're able to do that, when you're able to embed accountability with a metric across inclusion. Because what that means is it's easier to measure and it's easier to have a conversation when things go well, but also when they don't go so well. Um, and that's the key point here is, is developing um, for success and failure as opposed to just success, which I see too many people doing. You know, when we talk about this next generation, like in, in America, there's been a lot of conversations about Gen Z and how they're really going to shift and force, um, you know, conversation. You know, they're, they're going, th things are going to have to pivot um, because this next generation is much more socially uh, engaged. They're, they're using technology in unique and different ways. Um, and there's, there's going to be really like we're coming up on a, almost like a reformation of work because of this. Uh, this next generation. And then also, of course, you have millennials who are going to continue to like be be more prevalent and prominent in the workforce and leadership roles. I'm curious, like, is, is, is does the UK, I mean, do you, do you have, are there similar thoughts and things like that across the pond? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, that those thoughts and certainly in, in all of the global work I do are everywhere, um, that change in generations and that mindset shift and that expectation shift um, is everywhere in the world, certainly, you know, North America and everywhere else. Um, and we see that the younger generations are demanding more, that they are expecting more from employers and employees and um, that they are choosing where to work based on you know the response that organization has to DEI, what hiring managers are saying when they ask questions and in interviews around this work um, and i think that's because th this generation is is more outspoken is more comfortable being outspoken we, we had a case in the in the uk yesterday or the day before actually where there was a school in england which um, had banned um colored hijabs for that young girls were wearing um, and all of the students um, have protested. They sat outside, they wouldn't come into the school until the rule was changed. And then today it's been announced that the rule has been changed. Um, so they are they are not taking anything from anybody. They're really pushing. And I, I admire that in, in that generation um, because I think it's exactly what we need. We need to, you know, demand more. So let's talk about, you know, your latest book, what you're excited about, as we as we think about you know the rest of 2021 and just where people can learn more about you yeah of course so my latest book demanding more why diversity and inclusion doesn't happen and what you can do about it really focuses in on the history and the decisions that people have made to bring us to the the stage we're at now which is a world that is unfair and inequitable and then through that conversation provides very meaningful and measurable ways to make changes at a personal level and at a systemic level in your business. Um, every, every chapter is paired with senior leader interviews, CEOs, chief diversity officers, chief tech officers, and so on, who have really done this work in their business as well. So not just my views, but actually views of some incredible people um, too. And I mean, writing that book has been such a, a privilege with Kogan Page and um 
we our UK publication date is tomorrow and our US one is at the end of the month. Um, but you can pre-order now. It's everywhere, quite literally everywhere. <laughs> um, and for me, you can get me on Twitter at, at Nirashika, which is N-I-R-U-S-H-I-K-A. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm launching my website tomorrow, which is shereeatchison.com. So, I mean, if you Google me, you will find me no problem at all. It's facts. If I When I Google you, it's you on. You got the I'm TED, everywhere. You're everywhere. You're on the Forbes, on the TED Talk, HBR, <laughs> LinkedIn. You know what I'm saying? You, <laughs> That's it. Killing like out a here. virus. <laughs> <laughs> look, I'm I'm really excited and thankful that you were able to stop by. Um, and look, we can see your friend on the show. Um, let's make sure we have you back sooner than later. Also, you know, I'm gonna tease you a little bit. Thank you so much for uh, being on. Because you know, I hit you up like two years ago, and you were like, "Hey, yo, look, I'm a little too, I'm I'm too big for you." You know, you didn't say it like that. That's not what you said, but that's what you said. Though you was like, you were like, you like, oh, like, oh, you do America? I'm, I'm, look, I'm, I'm global. Like, I was like, I was like, oh, okay, am I? all right my fault and then i waited right i didn't say nothing i let you ride and then like i was like you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get on cbs i'm gonna get on fortune i'm gonna get on forbes and then i'm gonna hit her back and i hit you back the perception on my end excuse you was actually <laughs> that i thought that you thought i was from the u.s and that's why you were interested because people confuse me all the time they always think i'm from san francisco or something no and I'm like, no that's real though that i'm happened. not though no, yeah. that's real. That's real. Because and, and you know what? You're right. Because because your brand, because it does it does seem so global, but you're the um, the work that you do. And even sometimes like the way that you, it's it, you're right. I, I'm not surprised yeah. at all that people would sometimes like rush and assume yeah. that you're from the West Coast. Exactly. Um, so no, but no, no, but I'm teasing, you know, absolutely. It's, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for being a good sport. That was very funny. Uh, OK, <laughs> look, we're going to talk to you soon. Y'all listen, check out the links in the show notes. You heard all the stuff. We're gonna put. We're gonna put everything right there. So you click, check out the website, check out the her book, check out the Twitter, and then follow on LinkedIn. But look, if you type in Sheree Atchison, at, at if you type in her name, you're gonna see everything. All right. <laughs> but we're gonna put. We're gonna make it easy for everybody. Make sure you click the links in the show notes. Sheree, we're gonna talk to you soon. Okay. Perfect. Thank you so much, Zach. Have a great day. All right. Peace. Living Corporate is brought to you by the Leadership Range, a podcast within the Living Corporate Network. Hosted by globally certified and Fortune 500 executive coach and leadership development expert Neil Edwards, the leadership range is focused on having real, raw, soulful, and accountable conversations about inclusive leadership, allyship, professional development. Every week is a new episode with new learning and new actions to take on to grow inclusively. Make sure you check out the leadership range everywhere you listen to podcasts. All right, we're back. Yo, thank you, Cherie. Thank you. Uh, shout out to the team. Shout out to the break room. Yo, the break room got featured on Forbes. We see y'all. If you haven't checked out the Forbes article yet, man, you're missing out. You got to check out the Forbes piece. Shout out to the break room every single Thursday at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Our web series focused on mental health, healing and wellness for black folks at work. Shout out to y'all. Shout out to the access point. Shout out to the group chat. Shout out to our writers. Shout out to Aaron. We see you, our operations manager. You know what I'm saying? Appreciate y'all. Listen, if you haven't done this already, I need you to go ahead and give Living Corporate five stars on Apple Podcasts. That's right. I'm doing a hard transition now. All right. Now we're getting down to brass tacks, right? I did all of this, all this, this whole show, all of this. We're now at the hard sell, right? I'm asking y'all to give me something. All right. We come together as a unit as an organization 
and create fire content for your head top multiple times a week, right? For free, for the free 99, for the free ski. What I'm asking for is for y'all to go on Apple Podcasts, open up, the th- you know what I'm saying? Press five stars, just give it five. Put five on it. Put five on it, all right? And then take this, what you're listening to, and then share it with somebody, post it somewhere, right? I see the numbers. I see I see y'all listening. So I know you hear me when I'm telling you to go ahead. You know what I mean? Share this with your friend. Share this with your coworker. Put it in your text message group, right? In your WhatsApp or your signal. Whatever you send it to. Just share it around. You know what I'm saying? Put it put it out there. Share it around. And um, you know, help a brother out. Help a team out. You know what I mean? The more you share, the more you rate, the more you subscribe. Right. The more you do what you do, the more folks know about us and the more that we're able to grow. Right. That's what I need y'all to do. All right. <laughs> All right, y'all. Look, till next time. This has been Zach. You've been listening to Living Corporate. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.